So the question is why the church? Why the church? So usually when we ask that question, why the church, we're also asking the question of why is Jesus not enough? That's what seems to be the flip side of the question. Why the church shouldn't Jesus be enough? That's the uh, other side. So, first, I think it's important to point out in the like what God does in the very beginning of creation and what makes creation very good. So, you can spit it back to me. What happens? So, God creates the animals. God creates Adam. After that, what happens? Now, is it very good before God creates Eve? Is creation very good before God creates Eve? It's not yet. Not for Adam. Yeah. Right? Because it's not good that man should be alone. Right? So, follow-up question. Whenever Adam is created... Is he in perfect communion with God? Before Eve, is Adam in perfect communion with God? Yes. He is. Very good. All right. So, you see what's happening here is that at the very beginning of creation, you have Adam and he is in perfect communion with God. But it is still not good that Adam be alone. Right? And so what God does is that Adam goes to sleep, creates Eve, and now Adam, he's got a smile on his face instead of his flat face. And so a lot of times, and especially within the Protestant worldview, we kind of look at our church as what is the best way to facilitate me being in communion with God. I find the church that suits me, that helps me to find God. Because we think that God's only intention is for um, man to point us back to God. And while that's true, right? Like Like our relationship should point us to God. But there's a very real way, the very beginning of creation, in which God, even if we are in perfect communion with him, as Adam was, Adam was in perfect communion with God, that God points man back to man. That God points Adam back to Eve. And so, the, the I guess the Protestant, uh, or at least consumerist, approach that we have to the church is that we find the church that best suits us because ultimately the church is just kind of like a bridge. It's just a means. But God shows in the creation of Eve that the church is an end in itself, that the church in itself is a good. And we iterate this in, I don't know if y'all have gone over the Nicene Creed yet, I believe God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. This is what we say at Mass. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But also, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
the church in and of itself is good. Um, and then we see this all throughout salvation history, that God never has these private relationships with people. So there's the covenant with Abraham, right? Abraham is an individual. God has his relationship with him. But what is the thing that God promises Abraham? So we know what is the thing that God promises Abraham? That his descendants will be many. So God promises Abraham a people. He promises him what then becomes Israel, Jacob to Israel. So what does God promise Jacob after God wrestles with Jacob all throughout the night? A, a people, you know, right? So he does the same thing. And with the last clear covenant that God makes with a person where we have Abram to Abraham and then we have Jacob to Israel the last clear name change that we have in the New Testament who knows what it is who knows what that might be um that's not what I was going to say and it is it's yes and no because he's like he's Saul when he's with one community and he's Paul still when he's with another community. So it's all, but there's there's one right before that. It's in the New Testament. It's Simon to Peter. Simon to Peter, and what does God give Simon when he changes his name to Peter? What is the the content of the covenant? What does he promise him? We'll read it, actually. That will probably be good. So that we know that I'm not just making all this stuff up. Um, all right. So, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So specifically, God promises Peter the church, but he also just promises him the church. He promises him the church. So all throughout salvation history, whenever God gives a covenant, he doesn't just give himself, he gives a people. He gives, which is ultimately the people of God is the church. So when we say why the church, we also need to re- frame our definitions, that we're not just talking about a structure, we're not talking about a set of rules, that the church, the heart of the church, is the people of God. This is why, this is the church. And that the church in and of itself is a good thing. Now, in the beginning, God created man. Man was in perfect communion with God, again, perfect communion, yet that still was not enough for man. 
It was still that God needed to create Eve so that it was very good. And then we see throughout the Old Testament that God creates covenants with the people to try to organize a people around himself. He then does that in the New Covenant. And then the question is, what happens in eternity? What happens in eternity? We know that in eternity we are in communion with God. But then, um, who knows what we celebrated yesterday, what um, Catholic solemnity we celebrated yesterday in church? All Saints Day. All Saints Day. Very good. So, whenever we say All Saints Day, what we're saying is that all the saints are where? Right now. They're in heaven. And so they are in communion with each other. So even the saints, part of the enjoyment of the beatific vision, the enjoyment of going into heaven, is that we're not only in communion with God, but we are in communion with the saints. A lot of different saints say this, that um, whenever in heaven, we will praise the virtues of one another. You know, this is like what the real friendship is, that they recognize Christ in one another. C.S. Lewis talks about this in... Um, I think his book, uh, The Four Loves, he talks about friendship. Like if you ever go to a party, right, and you're with your best friend, it's let's say your best friend is hosting a party. You go to his house, and y'all are just the first two there, you're help setting up. And then someone else, another one of your friends shows up. So your best friend's name is Jeff. So it's you and Jeff, and then Tom shows up. Tom shows up and you notice another side of Jeff. And then you have Bill. Bill shows up and you notice still another side of Jeff. And as the more and more people show up within this friend circle, the more and more that Jeff comes alive, that you notice more about Jeff. So it is with the saints. That the more that we see the lives of the saints, the more that we recognize who Jesus is. Because they all reflect Jesus just in a different way. And so this is what the church is, right? When we talk about the saints, we're talking about the church triumphant. This is like a, this is a legitimate term. I'm not making this stuff up. It's called the church triumphant, the church that is in heaven, the church that's one. And then we have the church militant, which is us. Um, we're still in heaven. And then uh, the church, forget what is purgatory, church suffering. That is in purgatory, so we pray for the church suffering today at All Souls Day. So the church triumphant is this, that God gives the church, like God doesn't give Adam Eve, just so that Adam says, okay, by God, I don't need you anymore, I have Eve. You know, that would, that's obviously the, one of the first sins, you know, this first sin. But God gives Adam, Eve, so that in looking at Eve, Adam can look differently at God. So God gives us the church as an end in itself, as a good in and of itself, but also as a means. Does all this make sense? Yeah? That, um, like the same reason, like you would never say to your family, you know, God just gave me you uh, and you are good insofar as you are useful to helping me know God better. And to the extent that you don't, then you're disposable. That would be very offensive to your family if you said that. Um, no, but your family is good in and of itself. And so it is with the church. 
that we take the consumerist approach a lot of times as Americans, that we find the church that best suits us, but the church is a good in and of itself. Okay, so the question then is, am I in the right church? Is this uh, the Catholic church? Well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit, no, yeah, sure. Uh, we'll talk about that, why, why the church. So um, ever since man sins, and that whenever man sinned, there were a couple things that were ruptured. It wasn't just uh, communion with God that was ruptured. Um, but it was also communion with man that was ruptured, along with communion with uh, himself and communion with creation. Um, all these things are, these like harmonies are disrupted. Now, then ever since man sins, God has to restore all of these harmonies. Communion with God, and he does this slowly throughout salvation history. It reaches a climax in the person of Jesus Christ. But, yeah, so he, communi- he uh, restores communion with God through these different sacrifices. You know, the, the way in which we restore communion with God ordinarily is through sacrificial worship. Because in sacrifice, what we're doing is we're reordering creation to say, Creation is not better than God. You know, whenever uh, Adam ate the fruit of the tree, he said that this was greater than God. He created a disorder to turn things upside down. Now, God has to reverse that, and he does so slowly throughout the Old Testament, again, climaxing in the person of Jesus Christ. So, we had these burnt offerings, you know, the bulls, the lambs, all this being sacrificed throughout the Old Testament. Um, Then we have within man, throughout the Old Testament, the forming of a people. So this will obviously apex these sacrifices, this community with God will apex in the sacrifice of Christ, in the sacrifice of Christ. Then we have the one true sacrifice that actually causes communion with God. All the other things were prefigurements. And so it is with this communion with man that we have to be reunited to one another. And so throughout the Old Testament, again, we have, we have Abraham and his relationship uh, with God, Abram to Abraham, and he's entrusted many descendants. You have Jacob, and then who then turns into Israel. And Israel has his 12 sons. And so then from those 12 sons come the 12 tribes of Israel, which Moses is the one who then organizes as the head of the 12 tribes and as someone who then must establish 72 elders, 70 or 72 elders, that are going to help him uh, judge the different cases that's happening. So the one, not only does 
Moses just have the 12 tribes that are organized, but he organizes them with a law, right? I mean, we know the law. It rhymes with the uh, Fin Commandments. Okay, yeah, so the Ten Commandments is the law that he organizes them with. But then he, you know, he's got a lot of Israelites to deal with. So he can't judge the nuances of the law like somebody comes to Moses and says, you know, the seventh commandment says thou shalt not steal, but, um, uh, you know, Jeff stole my goat, but it was, he says it was on his property. Did he steal or not? And he's like, I don't know. Uh, I can't deal with all these cases. So then he chooses 72 elders. Uh, so he chooses 70. God makes 72. Um, but there, so there are 72 elders who are able to uh, judge the law with him and for him. You know, so then we come to the New Testament, and a lot of times say what Jesus didn't do. What Jesus did was that he came to overthrow uh, institutions. You know, because look at him on the Sabbath; he's always breaking the law on the Sabbath. Why is he doing that? Um, and then he's up. You know, he's he's tearing up the temple with his whips, his cords. Why is he doing that? You see, Jesus hates laws. Jesus, Jesus is the hippie that we needed. You know, um, that's that's not. But you know, there's a lot more that's happening. Um, so the people at his of his time would have known this. For instance, you have someone who is passing on this oral tradition, who's going around preaching and teaching. And he gathers around a small group of people with him. The small group of people uh, would very much look like a rabbi who is gathering people around him to give a new tradition. So the word for uh, the Jewish scriptures at the time of Jesus, even today, um, a, a certain part of the Jewish scriptures is called the Talmud the Talmud. And those people who would receive tradition from the rabbi would would call were called like the I think the the Talmi uh, I might have to look up that that word again, but it's a derivation of that word Talmud, which means to learn by heart. That's what the word Talmud means, to know by heart. So Jesus is is doing this. He's he's preaching and he's gathering these people, but then how many does he gather? Like of this of the, the closest group, how many does he have? Twelve. All right, that's a good good answer. Yeah, so twelve. All right. So he's in the Jewish context. He's got twelve. All right. And then he also, not only the twelve apostles, but he gathers so many disciples. How many does he have? It's 70 or 72. And then he also has someone that he establishes to be the leader of these, uh, this, this people, you know, this new people. Um, who is that? Peter. So it's very clear to the Jewish powers that be at the time that Jesus, this itinerant preacher, is forming a new kind of God's people, or at least a society that looks 
like God's people. And so Jesus very clearly throughout forms the church. Okay, so, and it's questionable. Someone might say, well, if that's the case, why doesn't Jesus ever talk about the church? But Jesus is always talking about the kingdom, which is just a synonym, you know, this juncture for church. Like, you know, what what kingdom does not have, or what king, if Jesus is a king, what uh, king does not have a kingdom, you know, with people within it, with subjects? And this kingdom is the church. So, all right, so why the Catholic church? Well, because we see this unbroken line historically between Jesus telling Simon, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And just for, you know, just for heads up that the word Peter means rock. And so whenever he calls, he, the little translation would be, you are rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's saying that it's upon you, I will build my church the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom, and there's this unbroken lineage that we call apostolic succession that goes throughout history. So Jesus, uh, we very clearly see like this, and then this word, it's not that Jesus says, and I will build my Catholic church upon this rock. The word Catholic doesn't really come into usage until... Uh, I believe it's, I always get them confused. Irenaeus of Lyon or Ignatius of Antioch. I think it's Ignatius of Antioch, who uses it uh, in the year one, around the year 150 AD. The word Catholic just means according to the whole or universal. So that's Antioch. All right, nailed it, first try. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's whenever it comes into use. But it's still the same unbroken lineage right throughout. And so we see that there are obviously like some of the similarities, uh, like that the Catholic Church does what Jesus commanded, you know, primarily one of the last commands that Jesus gives. Well, the last, I guess you say the last commandment before his death that he gives the last commandment that God gives. Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body. Do this in memory of me. It's a commandment. Do this in memory of me. And what do Catholics do as ritual worship? We do this in memory of him, because he commanded it. Um, we see it in John 20, 19, whenever Jesus tells those same 12 men, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. So, he do. There he gives them the power to forgive sins and to not forgive sins. You know, let's say Lucy comes into the confessional and she says, um, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I'm in an adulterous relationship. Um, and yeah, and I, I slept with uh, Tom four times in the past month. Okay. Uh, do you intend to end an adulterous relationship? No, I don't. Okay, sorry. I can't forgive you. You know, so in that way, the priests can retain sins because the person is unrepentant, right? Um, so, yeah, so we see this continuation of ministry uh, happen that Je- as Jesus has intended, and that there's this 
more so, what's more important is this unbroken lineage from uh, Peter to even now where there's been laying on of hands uh, to appoint new priests to pass on ministry. Um, so there's that, like, proof text, I guess, you know, that we can say. But then what are some of, like, the... So we see that God intended to create uh, a church in the person of Jesus Christ because, you know, the 12 that he organizes, the 72 that he organizes, the structure within it that says that Peter is going to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and then two chapters later he tells the 12, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That Jesus forms a people and gives the people a certain structure, a way of governing this new kingdom. Then we have to ask, why would Jesus do it? I think that's a genuine question. What is the wisdom behind the decision for him doing so? And we know this, that Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. So why, I want to ask you this, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? Why did Jesus ascend into heaven? Does anyone have any answers like why he would have done that? It's like a legitimate question. It would seem like it would be a lot easier if Jesus was still here, you know? So Jesus has to ascend into heaven so that he takes our human nature that he assumed and redeemed on the cross and bring it into the presence of God. So bring it into the presence of the Father. Let's bring it to our end. So if Jesus ascended into heaven, and it's necessary that he did so, he had, Jesus had to ascend into heaven or it was most fitting that Jesus ascended into heaven be for our redemption so that we could be saved. Now, whenever Jesus, so Jesus has to ascend into heaven to bring and keep our human nature in the presence of the Father to be in communion with him. Well, then, does, would Jesus want to be near to his people since he has left us bodily? Or does he want to remain distant? I mean, it's just like a question, right? Like, would, would, God, would God who became man only want to become man, in a sense, for the short period of 33 years? I don't think so either. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a very wise decision. That God would want to extend his humanity until he comes again. So this is what Jesus does in baptism and more acutely in the priesthood, that he extends his humanity to certain men that do his most sacred functions. For instance, the most, one of the most sacred acts that Jesus does is that he gives his body, blood, soul, and divinity to us for our redemption. He does that on the cross. And he also did it in the upper room. Would Jesus want to continue to do that? Or did he only want to do it for that, that one special group of people who was at Mount Golgotha that day? All of us. He would want to do it for all of us, right? 
Okay, so he continues to do that through the ministry of his priest. Whenever Jesus says to the paralytic, um, it's greater, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, rise, and walk. When he forgives that man's sins, and then he rises and walks, do you think that he just wanted to do it for that man particularly, or does he want to do that through someone's humanity after he leaves? He wants to do it for someone's, like through someone's humanity. I mean, this is the, kind of the wisdom behind confession, right? Is that we encounter, there's something like, even on a psychological level, where it's very beneficial to confess your sins to another person. You're coming in touch with someone's humanity, right? And that Jesus extends his humanity uh, to these men who are priests throughout because he extended his humanity to those 12 men, those 12 apostles in the upper room, when he told them, um, yeah, when he told them to, uh, you know, go and do likewise, to, uh, to take, take bread and take wine and turn into his body and blood, and to uh, forgive sins or to retain sins, that he uh, continued all of this. So there's real reason why God would want the church to continue. Not just that he did it, and because we saw that he did it, we have to believe. But there's real wisdom behind the church. Um, and again, going back to that kind of C.S. Lewis friendship analogy, is that whenever we live within the church, we come to know God so much more than we would be able to alone. Um, it's... I think it might be another C.S. Lewis quote or someone else who says, like, uh, I love to read books because I think with a thousand minds. You know, I think with the mind of a thousand people. Um, where, like, you're getting someone else's perspective, right? So there's even that, that kind of wisdom um, of why God would establish a church. And also because it is simply good for man to be in communion. As God says at the very beginning of creation, it is very good that man is in communion. Okay, so then I hope all of that seems really evident um, of why God would establish a church. Does that like does that make sense or do there seem to be any holes like Father, you haven't really explained this, you know? I guess we can stop and, and kind of take some of those those questions. Because uh, yeah. Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, like, is there anything that you feel like I didn't explain or, like, is left unexplained of, like, why we need the church um, and why Jesus would have established the church? I guess what are some common uh, Protestant rebuttals to maybe, like, the Catholic church or whatever? And I'm willing to take anything. Yeah. Um, I love that the question of, like, because you didn't like laws and all that, Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think to answer that question, um, I would rephrase it and say, did did God did Jesus in the you know flipping over of the uh, tables in the temple 
and in breaking the rules on the Sabbath, did he really, or did he show the real fulfillment of the rules? And I'd say the answer is that he showed the real fulfillment, that, for instance, one of the ways in which Jesus cures, uh, breaks the Sabbath is that he regenerates on the Sabbath. He cures people on the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath is that he's showing the real end of the Sabbath because he's calling out the Pharisees for taking their oxes to go drink from wells and that, well, you can do that, but I can't regenerate this person on the Sabbath. You think that this is work. And what I'm saying is that this is why God establishes the Sabbath so that man can rest, so that man can be regenerated. So, yeah, from like, from an outsider perspective, we can say, yeah, it seems like God is just, you know, making this, uh, I mean, that, sorry, um, that Jesus is just breaking rules, but it's pretty evident that he's reordering it, you know, and showing the real meaning of the Sabbath. Um, and so it is with the, the temple as well, what Jesus does in the temple is um, the way that the temple was structured was you had, uh, so this is the temple building. You have like the court of the Gentiles. So this is where Gentiles would come. They couldn't enter into the temple, but it was sort of like a, a middle ground in between. So you'd have like a large populace of not only Jews, but God-fearing Gentiles that lived at the time that, you know, like maybe they wanted uh, to convert or whatever it might be. Uh, but, well, the thing is, is that the money changers, so anytime that you came into temple, you had to bring, you went to the temple to sacrifice an animal, right? And you had to bring your animal. Well, if you're coming in from out of town, like, you're not going to bring an animal. What you'll do is that you'll bring money so that you can buy an animal, so that you can sacrifice it. So these are the money changers. Well, the problem with the money changers was that the money changers, they moved into the court of the Gentiles, where now no longer is the court of the Gentiles a place where these God-fearing Gentiles come. And this is, this is Jesus' ministry, in a sense, right? That Jesus wants to restore not only um, the two tribes of Israel that are remaining, but the lost tribes, all goes back to like salvation history. So you have um, in Israel, they're exiled a lot. And so what's happening is that as the Israelites are exiled from Israel, from the Babylonians or the Assyrians, then what do they have? They have babies with Gentiles. And so now they're no longer pure blood Israelites. And so it seems like this great big deal. I know I'm, I'm tangenting right now, but it's, it's just good to know. It seems, like, it seems like God had broken his promise that he had to, like, he was going to restore the tribes of Israel, but now the tribes of Israel are lost. But what God then does in the person of Christ is that because now this Israelite, I guess, gene, you could say, like, this Israelite blood has been spread all throughout the world, God then opens up his salvation to the whole world to save the lost tribes, you know, those who, like for instance, the Samaritan, right? She's half Israelite, right? And offers salvation to the Samaritan. Anyway, all I would say, this is why Jesus takes it so seriously 
whenever he overturns the tables in the court of the Gentiles. Because now it's saying, like, they're not welcome, you know, here. So, yeah. I mean, this is also clear, not just what Jesus does in sign. So it seems like he wants to break all these rules and do all that. But also it's very clear in Matthew that he says, whoever, what does it say about the laws, you know, whoever removes even one iota. Yeah, right. I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When he says that. I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So that's pretty clear as well. This isn't exactly on what you've talked about yet, but uh-huh. maybe you talk about membership in the church. Like who is considered the church? Okay. Talk about the people of God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the baptized are members of the church. Um, yeah. Uh, so those... I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Okay. Yes. No, varying degrees of participation. No, that's good. So, yes. Anyone who is baptized is in some way a member of the church. Why? Because um, God, Jesus gives the church ability to baptize. He tells the disciples, Go ye therefore and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So all those who are baptized are baptized because of the church. Even though they might not be formally like in the Catholic Church. But the thing is, is that Jesus entrusts that sacrament to the church. Now, not in the fullness of the church because Jesus also entrusts the sacrament of confession. In John 20, 19, as we talked about, whoever sins you forgiven, forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, or retain. John also entrusts, uh, I mean, Jesus also entrusts the Eucharist to the church. Well, I, you know, don't have this in, in Protestant churches, right? So, uh, at least not the way that Jesus intends, because you don't have apostolic succession. So, there are varying degrees of membership um, within the church. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not a smaller detail might be a dumb question, but I was kind of wondering. Some denominations I've heard when they baptize people, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son, but not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is that is there something? Yeah. So that would not. Yeah, that's a tough deal because that would not be a formal. Uh, that would not be a uh, a valid baptism, and the reason is because it's not as Jesus commanded. So uh, it's the same thing. Uh, used to be a fad in some Catholic churches uh, to baptize in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. Same thing. That person is baptized in that way. That actually happened to a guy. This is sad. This happened to a guy, uh, a Midwestern guy. Uh, my older brother knew. My older brother's a priest as well. And uh, he, this guy was ordained. Turns out, though, that he wasn't ordained because they were looking at some of his old, uh, like, kids' videos and they pull up this video of his baptism, find out that, I think with him, another invalid way of baptizing, I think in his case, I don't know if they did Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier, but 
you had the priest reading, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the deacon was dunking him. I was like, oh no, this man's not baptized. So it means if he wasn't baptized, then he also was not confirmed. And then if he was not confirmed, then he was never ordained a deacon. And if he was never ordained a deacon, then he was never ordained a priest. And so it was like, uh-oh, we have, we have this pagan man dressed in priest clothes, you know, doing all these sacraments. So they had to re-go and, and redo all of them. And then, uh, huh? Yeah, so that meant that all of his confessions were invalid. That meant that all of his Eucharists were invalid, all of his Masses. His weddings, you can still do weddings as a lay person, only with like, you know. Um, so you can still witness uh, weddings. And I guess his baptisms would have been valid too because you don't even need to be baptized to bat. Like if you pull over on the side of the road and, and like you're dying or whatever, and uh, you see, you know, the only person right next to you is, in the car wreck as a Muslim and say, can you baptize me? Can you intend what the church intends? They can baptize you uh, if they intend what the church intends. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, there's nothing you can really do about that. Um, They would, yeah, you can't assume that their sins are forgiven. So, like, yeah, if you went to confession to that person, you'd say, like, okay, you know, and for the sins that I confess, you know, to this man, and, like, to the best of your recollection, to reconfess him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's not like, oh, you know, but it, like, but what mattered was the intention. Because we have to, we have to say that sacraments have real effects because Jesus has real effect, you know, because it's real power. You know, Jesus doesn't give... Like these, you know, the priests make believe power, you know, to forgive sins. Yeah, so it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. One thing, okay, so what I wanted to, uh, you all want to take a little break, and then I wanted to talk about, and we might not go the whole time, but I want to talk about the Protestant split and why we think the way that we do about why we don't need the church. But yeah, we get some water in five minutes.
Standing of the church where it's like, well, I either, I can't have the church because the church is going to get a, going to get in the way of my relationship with God. Like any man, any man run institution is going to get in the way of my relationship with God because, well, anything that's not God is an obstacle, you know, to God. Does that kind of make sense? You know, like I want to. I want to get to the pure truth of who God is. Anything else, it's going to be an obstacle. So that's a, like a pretty common thought, right? I'm spiritual but not religious because religion gets in the way of true spirituality. Um, now, this is going to originate with this guy. Uh, he is a um, was a Franciscan friar named William of Ockham. You've ever heard of Ockham's razor? It's like a philosophical term. Um, this like comes from him. He's, you know, a lot of, in his time, William of Ockham lived in the um, Middle Ages uh, before the Renaissance. And so uh, the Franciscans a lot of the Franciscans were very academic at his time. So he's a philosopher who really comes up with this philosophy called nominalism. What It's not very important, the contents of nominalism. Well, it is, and because nominalism affects so much the way nominalism, um, yeah, affects so much the way that we think today. What nominalism uh, is, is saying that and again, this is a philosophical idea, not necessarily a religious idea. So before William of Ockham, the common philosophy of the time is something called uh, hylomorphism, which basically means that everything in creation, every living thing in creation, has uh, matter and form. It has a body and a soul. So, like, typically we think, like, only men have souls, right? But um, men is in humanity, right? That only humanity has souls. But uh, trees have soul. Rocks have a soul. Um, dogs have a soul. Just not immortal, you know, like, not rational souls. That's reserved to, to man. Um now, what this did was, this idea of body and soul was that you were able to talk about a thing 
and it have the same kind of soul in different matters. So for instance, like, uh, like I could be human and you could be human and I could be me and you could be you. And yet still, like we are within the same nature that we are both human. Uh, because we have the same kind of ma- uh, we have same kind of form or the same kind of soul. Uh, you say same thing about like the oak tree over here and the oak tree over there. That they're both oak trees. It's just one is different from the other because the matter or the body itself is different, but the soul that forms the matter is actually uh, the same, the same kind. What nominalism did is that William of Ockham is going to say, like, actually, this idea of natures, this idea of souls, like, that you are a man and I'm a man, it's just something that helps us to think more clearly. It helps us to think through categories a lot faster. And the reality is, is that, like, we are very similar, but we, are, we don't share the same kind of nature. That's what nominalism is. What nominalism created was it, when it was flushed out into its full implication, was that it put God on the same level as man and the same level as the rest of creation. So Catholic theology and philosophy before that, God was on a whole nother, nother level, uh, another plane of existence. God's existence itself. Now, God is on the same plane of existence as man. So this is going to create a problem in our way of thinking. This obviously creates a problem in our way of thinking with even how a lot of people think about faith and science today. That, for instance, it's either that... um, God caused it to rain or that some clouds received heavy um, like heavy precipitation and like and rain fell out of the clouds right because God is on the same level as creation now it's either or it's either the material world or it's God's causality it's God causing himself it cannot be that God causes things through the material world Okay, so we see how those things can be in opposition to one another, even in science. Well, now, in Protestantism, in, in, the, in that same mindset, we talk about things like salvation. So if you're probably, if you're coming from a Protestant background, or even if you're not, you may, you may be familiar, this idea that um, either God is holy or I am holy, cannot be both. So you have the Calvinist idea, John Calvin, originates this idea that man is totally corrupt by sin, uh, him being totally corrupt by sin. What happens in the redemption is that um, this dung, this pile, of, this pile of crap that man is, now gets covered in snow. You know, it gets covered by the blood of Christ. And so then man is not actually changed. He's just forgiven. He's so fully corrupt that, um, yeah, this is how he is. Uh, you have 
this idea of like merit and salvation. Well, man can't merit his salvation. Either God does it from free gift and man does nothing, or man does it and God does nothing. See how these two things are in opposition? This even affects Protestant art. So if you notice, you go to a Protestant church, there's almost no art. You go to a Catholic church, especially the older ones, there's all kind of art. Where the idea is that, well, if I'm going to worship the invisible God, then creation cannot be an obstacle to it. Anything else is that I'm worship, worshiping graven images. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at other things, but I'm not looking at God. So, yeah. Yeah. And I noticed that, um, why is it, like, growing up, you never talked about Mother Mary? She was never in any art. And, like, I know she was, obviously, but um, she was not nearly as, like, Yeah. She was, like, never really talked about her. Like, why, why not? Right. Well, it's the same idea, right? It's like, no, you pray to God, you don't pray to Mary. That everything else is just an obstacle. And, you know, the funny thing with, uh, I, and I forgot to make this point, but the idea that whenever God creates Adam, so whenever God creates Adam, he then, he's, Adam is in perfect communion with God, right? There's no problem here. But then it's still not good that Adam is alone. So then God has to create Eve. And so looking again, God, like a lot of times we say, we just, hopefully the relationships in our lives just point us to God. But God actually points us to man. Like God points us to Eve. God points Adam to Eve, right? Whenever he creates. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then what does Jesus do, who is God made flesh, right before he dies? Does anyone know what is the last gift that he gives? Right before he dies, the last gift that he gives. His mother, he gives Mary to John, he gives Mary to the church, so that now God made flesh, the person of Jesus. Uh, um, he's on the cross. And then he gives Mary to John. He, like, so it's, a lot of times we say, like, well, Mary points to Jesus, and that's true, but Jesus also points to Mary, where Jesus says, you know, son, behold your mother. So, yeah, so the, it's, it's all the same idea that everything, and this is why, like, you'll hear from Protestants a lot, like, why do you pray to saints, you know? Um, they're getting, even if they're effective, they're getting in the way, you know, it's, it's like, it's lanyap, you know, it's extra stuff. Um... But, yeah, so that, I mean, that's why, because of that idea, rather than, like, we see very clearly in creation and in the redemption that God points us back to creation. He points us back to, to Mary, you know, points us back to Eve. And so, yeah, um, I don't know, I guess, does that help answer your question or? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. that's definitely part of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that, that's how we're at where we're at right now. You know, is that everything in, uh, and we live in kind of like anomalous mindset. Um, like nominalism leads to this idea of um, like church might be good for you, but it's not good for me. The whole God thing might be good for you, but it's not good for me. Why? Because what they're also saying is that you and I are totally different. And we know before, you know, like nominalism, no, you and I are actually the same. We have the same nature. We have the same goods. Like we like we we both know that it's good to exist in community. Like for all people, it is good to exist in community. For all people, it is good to know. For all people, it is uh, good to love, right? Like those are universal goods, you know? That are common to, to human nature, but with within like the like we now live like post nominalism, you know, it's like it's like you imagine like a nuclear idea bomb that like went off and we're all radiated by it, you know, um, yeah. So when I think about the the prayer that you started with, the Our Father, um, the disciples wanted Jesus to teach them how to how to pray to God. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's there's never a point in uh, I guess like within redemption that like it climaxes in this kind of like personal private relationship with God. Like ultimately, like how sad would it be if God did not establish a church? Like ideally, would God want humanity to be one, or do does He want us to all be separate and just like good luck? Survival of the fittest. I hope you can find him in prayer in the solitude of your own room. It's pretty sad. Or does Jesus, right before he goes to die, say, Father, I pray that we are one, that they are one as we are one. You know, like Jesus' desire is that the church can be wholly one so they can reflect the unity of the Trinity. You know, so, yeah. That's pretty much, I think that's pretty much all I have, but y'all have any more, I'm sure I missed some like crucial points of like, uh, yeah, what, uh, yeah, whatever, uh, whatever questions you might have about why we need the church. We do, we do need the church to pray and to pray for us as well. You know, that's another thing. That's another thing that we do whenever we do liturgy uh, is anytime that we do one of the church's liturgies, we're invoking is the prayer of the church so that we're joining the whole prayer of the church, you know? Um, yeah, so we're all united in prayer.
Uh, I'll start with the corruption question. Uh, there was never not a time when the church was not corrupt. So, for instance, uh, while <clears throat> you know Jesus ordains his first his first twelve priests uh, in the upper room, hours later, one of those twelve priests hands him over to death. You know, so there's never a time when the church is not corrupt. Jesus does not, you know, not foresee this. And still, even after his resurrection, he doesn't say, okay, starting with a clean slate. We're going to get new guys in here. You know, no, it's the same people. So the church has always been corrupt. And why? so why? Why would that be? Well, because God is going to show his glory through broken humanity. Like, God does not ask angels to be priests. You know, he asks men to do it. Broken, sinful men. So, yeah, there, there's always going to be corruption in the church. And... Um, what I would point that person to is never to what man does, like what's within man's power. So, like, the guarantee of the church being the church has nothing to do with the quality of people that are in the church. It has everything to do with Jesus' promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. And it has everything to do with Jesus' promise that he will send the Holy Spirit as the counselor to lead them into all truth so that the church will remain within the truth uh, in John 17. So, yeah, I'll point them to that. They're like, everything depends upon... The question is not, do I trust the church? The question is, do I trust Jesus? Yeah. Do I trust that Jesus has sent this people the Holy Spirit. Jesus never told, promised anybody that the church was going to be not corrupt. Just never did. But he did promise that the gates of hell should not prevail against it and that he was in the Holy Spirit to lead him to all truth. So, yeah. And I would also say, like, if if you're looking for the church that's not corrupt, um, one, good luck. Two, how prideful are you? like to think that you're without sin and that you are going to find this community of people that are also, you know, going to be without sin. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and then translations, Bible, I mean, like, we're looking at, we still have all, if we could find manuscripts that validate it, you know, otherwise, then, hey, they would have been found, you know. But like the most ancient manuscripts still have all these same translations. You know, the one translations that differentiate are the ones that happen in like the 1500s with Martin Luther changes a few words to help justify his uh, his idea of the gospel. But yeah, I mean, where are these? You know, like yeah, I just you have to show them the show the data. You know, so. Right. Okay, good. So it's important. All right. So the. Can you maybe just back up one day and say, like, what's the timeline? Or what time are we talking about these things happening? Oh, uh, Pro- between Protestantism? Yeah. Yeah, so Protestantism. Yeah, sure, sure. Sorry. 
So uh, Martin Luther, uh, guy who begins the split between Catholicism and Protestantism, Protestantism being every other Christian denomination that is not Catholic, outside of the Orthodox, and if I don't know who the Orthodox is, don't worry about them. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. We can talk about that. Yeah, it's time. Uh, but yeah, so you have, so every other den- Christian denomination that is not Catholic, except for one, Orthodox. All right, now, that happens in the 1500s, Protestant split. Yeah, 1500s. Um, all right, so that's when it happens. 1500 years. Yeah. Fif- yeah, yeah, yeah. 1054, there's a little, you know, but yeah. With the Orthodox, but yeah, that's about it. So for 1,500 years, yeah, still all one church, right? Okay. So what is, why are there 72 books in the Catholic Bible, I guess 65 or 66 in the Protestant Bible? Um, so it, it's kind of a long, winding question. What, what Luther is going to do, so, all right. What Luther is going to do whenever he forms what he calls his canon of scripture, so whenever he puts his book of the Bible, is that he will look at the, uh, what is the Jewish scripture at the time? It's before. So it's important to note that um, even at the time of Jesus, all the books of the Old Testament are not agreed upon. And there are a few, seven, that are, uh, that are, are, I think, the Alexandrian community, Alexandria being in Egypt, the Alexandrian Jews, said, like, these seven are in the Old Testament. And then, I think it's the Palestinian, you know, uh, community, were like, uh, we don't think that these seven should be in the canon. So even in Jesus' time, there's still, like, Offset, right? Okay. So Martin Luther's going to look at that and say, like, well, we'll want these extra seven books. Well, what's going to happen is once the church is formed in the late 300s, I think, or early 400s, uh, the church is going to finally finalize its canon. Like, what are the books of the Bible at this local council? And those are the 72. Now you say, like, what do you mean? Like, how did the church decide? How does the church get to decide that? Well, because the church is the people of God, you know? Uh, the church can can decide what are, like, can look and recognize, oh, this is God's word, you know? Even those extra seven books, that this is God's word. Because a lot of times, like, we think, you know, well, the Bible slid off of a rainbow, and, like, if you were on one side of the rainbow, you got the Protestant one, and if you got the other side of the rainbow, you got the Catholic one, you know? Uh, but no, it's the church who forms who forms the canon, the canon being the collection of Scripture. The church decides which books are in the Bible. So anytime that anybody picks up a Bible, in a sense, like, they kiss the bishop's ring, you know, because it's like, you better thank the bishops that they, they recognize that this is the book, you know, these are the books that are in the Bible. Um, so that's why. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's not that the Catholics added books, it's that the Protestants took them out. Yeah, so they're, uh, again, they're all the Old Testament, 
I don't know all of them off the top of my head. Uh, Sirach, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, um, Tobit, yeah. Uh, maybe. Wisdom, yeah, wisdom. Yeah. And, yeah, and, like, some of our clearest proof texts for, for purgatory are in Second Maccabees. So, yeah, so that's, and then, like, you can't point a Protestant to that because, like, it's not in their Bible. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, anyway. Um, but, yeah, that's part of another question of, like, yeah, where does the Bible come from? And, like, they're obviously different written books written by different authors at different times, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it's the church who collects all of it and says that, like, this is the Bible, you know? And the reason why the church can do that is because, like, God did not speak to Abraham through, like, a text message, you know? Did not speak to Abraham by giving him a scroll. Um, like, the Bible is recorded events of God interacting with his people. And so God's people can determine, like, which books of the Bible show, you know, are inspired by the Holy Spirit. No, they, like, they already were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but you get the point, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Are you all unquestionably convinced that you are in need of the church? Yeah. All right, good. Please. Uh, okay. Yes, I can. Let me.